This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. The Republicans believed they no longer had a choice. Impeachment was the only way to stop a president who refused to accept the acts of Congress, who usurped its prerogatives, and who most recently had violated a law that he pretended to wave away as unconstitutional. Lest you think these might be the words that certain Democrats today fantasize might happen, They are, in fact, words written by the esteemed author of a new book entitled The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson and the Dream of a Just Nation. Her book has deservedly been described as absorbing, important, riveting, compulsively readable, and done with scholarly authority and literary grace. And if this wasn't enough of a reason to read this book as soon as possible, consider the historian Daniel Borstein's suggestion that trying to plan for the future without a sense of the past is like trying to plant cut flowers. Therefore, we are delighted to delve into this period in our history by welcoming Brenda Wineapple to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here. It's great. So let's start with an obvious question. Here comes a book called The Impeachers. It's in the midst of, you know, overt, inadvertent conversation about impeachment. Right. Is that what drove you to write this book? No, I no. started. <laughs> no, I started six years ago. Who knew? So in other wh- words, I was deep in the Obama administration, and as I've said, you know, often people would ask me what I'm working on. I'd say the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, and they'd say, "Uh huh," and head for the door because it seemed like a dusty, uninteresting topic. Nobody thought about impeachment. It was not even near time for an, you know, an election at that particular time. It's 2013. Yeah. So. And you had written, you've written a number of books that are placed in the 19th century. Your book, uh, it was Ecstatic. Ecstatic Nation is the book that I wrote before this. And actually, this book comes out of that. Because when I finished that book, and a book spans a much larger period. It's right. about, you know, before, during, and after the Civil War. And I realized in thinking about that book and in writing it, I knew very little about the impeachment of Andrew Johnson and mm. what happened. And I thought, isn't that interesting that I know so little, that I'm fairly well-educated, I know a lot about the 19th century. And here was a, a an unusual event. It was the first presidential impeachment in the history of the country, and it seemed to have disappeared off the radar. And so I wanted to know what happened, but I also wanted to know why no one seem to know very much about it. And I think that's true today, even six years later. We, not only about that impeachment, about what the process really looks like. We see a lot of little snippets in the paper about high crimes and misdemeanors right. and unfit for office and what does all of right. that mean. Right. But one of the things that this process, I think, can inform us about is what does it really look like? So there are a lot of threads here for Mm -hmm. us to talk about, but let's lay the groundwork. Sure. 
who was Andrew Johnson perceived to be mm-hmm. when he was, as a Democrat, right. to a Republican Lincoln, right. was chosen to be Lincoln's vice president? Right, right. Well, that, what's interesting about Andrew Johnson at that point is that, as you say, Lincoln was a, a Republican. It was 1864. Lincoln wasn't sure that he was actually going to win that election, and clearly he wanted to stay in the White House and finish the war. So what he thought, I think, and I think others would agree with me, was that the best way to balance the ticket, the presidential ticket, was to make sure that someone um, from a different party, namely the Democrats, and from the South, because Johnson had represented Tennessee in the Senate, was on his ticket. The person that Lincoln had didn't really add anything. Now, Lincoln was interested in Johnson because Johnson had a very good reputation in the North, too. Mm. And the reason he did was he was the only Southern senator in 1860 and 1861, after Lincoln was elected, who stood up against secession. And imagine how courageous that was at that time. He was burned in effigy across Tennessee. You know, people wanted, they called him in the South a traitor. um, Many of his colleagues from the South stopped talking to him. And he stood firm and he said he believed in the Union and in the Constitution. And he was very, very clear about that. So during the war, in the Union-occupied part of Tennessee, Lincoln had made him military governor of Tennessee. Mm. So he was in favor of secession. Was there any knowledge of where he stood on the issue of slavery? He was a slave owner. Well, yes. He was against secession. He was in favor of the Union. Uh, No, no. It gets confusing. Believe me, I understand that. And he was was in favor of the Union, and he thought that slavery was better protected in the Union because as far as he was concerned, the Constitution allowed slavery. That's how he read the Constitution. certainly wasn't the way an abolitionist or would have read it. No, of course not. But he really felt, and he was actually right about this, that once you secede, you're putting you're putting slavery on the path to extinction. So stay in the Union, he counseled the South, and then slavery is protected by the Constitution. So it wasn't as if he was anti-slavery or an abolitionist. And in fact, he was he'd been Raised, I mean, he he came from nowhere. He, he had like, a background not unlike Lincoln's very in much. some ways. Yeah, right? he was born in a long cabin. You know, he was he was not schooled. Um, he was self educated. He was extremely poor, and and even more shocking, really, even than Lincoln's background. His Johnson's mother had hired him out as an indentured servant. To a tailor, right? To a tailor. That's where he learned his profession. But basically, he was called what was called a bound boy. So for a white person in the South, that was almost, it was not like being a slave at all. No. But, but still, it meant that, you know, he was in a sense owned by someone else. And when he and his brother ran away from the tailor shop where they were indentured, there was a, there was a wanted poster on him. You know, there was a reward. Mm. So he he 
you know, had very little. And when he started— And temperamentally, his, didn't that leave him— Scarred. Scarred. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is, you know, white Southerners, planters, the aristocracy looked down on him. Mm. And when he succeeded in life, when he got more money, his tailor shop, his own tailor shop was very successful in Tennessee— one of the first things he did was buy slaves. So, yeah. you know, to show that he was part of a— He had a, moved up the food chain. <laughs> sort of, so to speak. So in that sense, you can see, I mean, he he had he had no use for abolitionists, for anti-slavery people, none of that. And as far as he was concerned, slave—you know, the enslaved population was better off within slavery than without. So, so Brenda, did yeah. Lincoln or the public or the political class know that about him, that he wasn't necessarily anti-slavery and sort of closed their eyes to that issue about him? Or was that, was it a, you know, a very politically pragmatic decision by Lincoln? How's that viewed? Well, I think it was a pragmatic decision. Yeah. I mean, that one could turn a kind of, um, you know, turn a cold shoulder to it, you know, and sort of ignore that part of his background because he brought so much to the ticket and because by this time, 1864, the Emancipation proclamation had passed and Johnson was keeping quiet, you know, his own racial views. And, you know, Lincoln was many things. And one of the things he was, was practical. And Mm. as I said, he really wanted to win that that election. And by putting Johnson on the ticket, he could convince um, border states not to join the Confederacy. Exactly. And he could also suggest that Tennessee was still in the Union, even though part of it was. Was it? Yeah. So it was a pretty savvy move, it seems to me. So, Brenda, put put all of this in time context. Mm -hmm. When did Lee surrender? 1865 in April. April of 65. April, just day, really, you know, hardly before like, the assassination, you know, yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, Grant and Lee met. This is April of 1865. The peace agreement was signed, you know, at Appomattox. And within a week, Lincoln is dead. It's the most astonishing period, it seems to me, in American history because you had such a horrible civil war where at least, at least 750,000 people had been killed, slaughtered, really, in that war. And and the number keeps rising because we keep realizing that there were so many um, people who were collateral, so to, so to speak, damage. I mean, so it was probably even more than we think. Mm. And and a whole 11 states had actually left the Union. So imagine what this was like. You know, there was poverty. There were now... Destruction. F- destruction everywhere, blasted trees, you know, homes that had been pilfered or burnt. I mean, it was just really a terrible time. The war is pretty much lurched to an end. The Union is victorious, but Lincoln, the head of the country, is gunned down. I mean, and that's the first ever presidential assassination. Assassination. Can you imagine what it was like then? So Johnson had been vice president for what, four or five years? 
six yeah, weeks. Yeah, because the inauguration in those days was in March. And he didn't do himself any favors during the inauguration. He was drunk or something? <laughs> the story is that he had a cold or something, and the whiskey he took to fortify himself mixed yeah. with his cold medicine. I don't know what kind of cold like what medicine. what kind of cold medicine? They, had in they, didn't, they didn't exactly have Alka-Seltzer cold plus. Well, who knows? <laughs> well, I mean, who knows what really happened? Yeah. I mean, maybe he was just so nervous, and he, he took a couple of shots probably of whiskey, and he started to babble, and he put planted a big sloppy kiss on the Bible. People were mortified. One cabinet member whispered to another, he's crazy. And Lincoln said, when they went outside, keep him away from me. So we didn't start very well. And of course, Lincoln, like all of us, didn't have any expectations that he would be dead in a matter of weeks. Yeah. And then Johnson would be taking not the vice presidential oath, but the oath of the presidential office, which he did just shortly hours after Lincoln was wow. pronounced dead. So yeah. now th- there were some key issues going on at that time. So as you right. said, it was just the Emancipation Proclamation had just been signed. The condition in the South was horrendous, right, horrendous. Right, right, right. There was a lot of vestige of anger. Mm-hmm. So share with us this issue. What were the conditions that were being proposed before the Confederate states could Come rejoin back. the Congress? Right. What was some of the conversation around the roles or the pu- punishments of Confederates themselves right. within uh, their states? And what was what were the conditions of the blacks who mm. were now slavery has been ended? Right. What was the condition of the blacks? What was going on between the whites and the blacks in some of the southern states? So we get a sense of the atmosphere at that time. Well, even before we go there, you know, in a sense, what we have is a very peaceful in this raucous time transition of power. Shockingly, right? Yeah. I mean, basically, Lincoln is pronounced dead. The chief justice, whose name is Salmon Chase, administers the oath of office to Johnson, Andrew Johnson. Johnson promises to keep Lincoln's cabinet in place. Mm -hmm. He promises to uh, carry out whatever Lincoln's plans were, not that anybody knew. So everybody could feel reassured, you know, that here was, uh, as I said, a peaceful transfer of power because nobody knew what was going to happen. And, of course, the president was was lying in state, basically. So we have that. And at this particular time, then in April of 1865, Congress is in recess. Right. So Congress is not supposed to come back into session until December. That's a long time. So a couple of congressmen go up to Johnson and say, maybe you should call a special session because of all the things you just outlined. In other words, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with these states? Talk about big issues yeah, to be resolved. You know, we have 400, you know, we have 400 million, 4 million people who had been enslaved who are now free, but they don't, they don't even know the clothes on their backs. I mean, they have, you know, they've never had wages. They've never been a allowed to learn to read and write. They can't marry or travel. Where are they going to go? You know, where are they going to live? How are they going to work? So there's that. And then there's the question of the states. And, and Johnson, who had said that 
you know, he hated secession, that that the seceders were traitors and they should be prosecuted. You know, Johnson was met with a great deal of optimism. People thought he's going to do a great job. He's going to, everything will be fine. Well, the first thing, as I said, he did is say, no, I don't think we want a special session of Congress, mm. which meant that he could do pretty much what he wanted from so the executive office. So then he would exercise yeah. executive powers. Exactly. And that meant that he was going to determine by himself right. who could come back into the union. And, of course, Congress, the mandate of Congress is Congress can determine who sits in Congress. It, it can determine the qualifications of its own members. So right there, there's a kind of usurpation that made people very nervous. Mm. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the terms for coming back into Congress were lenient, to say the very least, because Johnson began saying secession hadn't happened. These states hadn't seceded. I mean, that's a real head scratcher. You've Which just means been fighting that they for were a war for... automatically entitled to yeah, take their seat back. Right. And that's incredible because when you think about it, what's been going on for the last four years, this bloody war, you know, and, and these 11 states called themselves the Confederate States of America. And he's saying it didn't happen. Talk and there was an irony. There was an irony there, right? Because with the Thirteenth Amendment and the Emancipation Proclamation, right. actually the population right. of the South increased because blacks, who had been considered three fifths of a person, are now full. So all of a sudden, not only are they coming back, but they can have more of them. Right, exactly. And so, <laughs> so Congress, a little ironic. No, it's it's seriously ironic because everybody, you know, Republicans, especially in, in the North, felt, oh my God, what's going to happen now? We're basically restoring the Southern power, Southern and you know, increasing all, their power. Yes, exactly. Especially, if, particularly if you don't give the black population the vote. Right. So that's one of the issues. But at this point, for getting the vote, the black population doesn't even have citizenship. Right. So Johnson begins to say all the states had to do and all, you know, anyone had to do really is denounce, you know, denounce secession, accept the 13th Amendment, ratify it, abolishing slavery. And people who served high up in the Confederacy, in the government, or in the military, were not allowed to vote. But others could, and and no one else who made more than, I think it was $10,000, but anyone else can apply for a pardon. So Johnson started setting up governors in the system. In the South, he's basically determining who can get back into government and and into Congress, and then he starts issuing pardons. So like you can, a hundred a day, right? About a hundred a day. It's it's incredible, really. And so Congress is beside itself, and when it finally meets in December of eighteen sixty five. It's not going to allow these Southerners, some of whom had been Confederate generals, and one of whom was the vice president of the Confederacy, they're not going to allow them to take seats in Congress. They're saying, well, wait a minute, you've you've taken over our prerogatives. This is what we're supposed That's our to job. do. That's our job. And how, yeah. how did that get resolved? It took a long time to get resolved, really, because it was a kind of, um, there was a um, kind of friction 
friction is too mild, you know, yeah. a, a contest between now the executive branch and the legislative branch about what the what the course of action should be. Meantime, Congress started passing legislation to, for example, um, fund or refund something called the Freedmen's Bureau, which was uh, set up late in the war to help refugees and the former enslaved people with education, clothes, mm-hmm. work. Johnson vetoed that funding. Congress passed, and they thought, Congress thought that Johnson would go along with civil rights legislation. Right. And all that did, and it didn't give anybody the vote at this time. Right. It was just, it just allowed um, the black population to have due process. You know, and he vetoed citizen, that. And he vetoed that. But <laughs> shockingly. Shockingly. Congress, shockingly. for the first time ever, right, overrode a presidential Con- veto. Congress overrode these presidential vetoes so that you can really see now that there's a kind of loggerheads that's going on. Meantime, because Johnson had been so lenient in the South, and basically he's allowing something that we know as home rule or basically states' rights, which yeah. had been the whole issue of the Civil War. What's happening is that states in the South start passing in their legislatures what's called black codes. Mm. And it's really reinstituting slavery by another name. Yeah. What it does is say if you're black, you can't you can't travel freely, you can't make contracts. You can't marry. You need to carry a pass on the street. I mean, imagine what that is and that you can be thrown in jail if you don't show this pass. I mean, it was incredible that this was happening. And there were huge pockets of horrific violence. Violence. Yes. Yes. That's what I was getting to because now you have these black codes. Now you have former rebels in many of the police forces in several cities. And you have a kind of irate population, white population, feeling um, that it's, you know, angry. And, and humiliated. And, and, and humiliated and taking it out um, because they're allowed to in a certain sense yeah. uh, on the black population. There was a terrible violence. And, and was that permission, was that sort of a... Uh, de facto permission by Johnson yeah. because when there were riots in Memphis or other southern communities, he didn't call anybody out. No, that's absolutely right. And the, and the riots, I mean, there, we know of such horrific riots like what happened in Memphis or in New Orleans just about, you know, a month or so later in 1866, in the spring and summer of 1866, where black men and women were just gunned down on the street and there were so many corpses on the street and such violence, such really mob violence that um, people living there were afraid to go and claim their dead because they might be shot too. Shot just for that. That's right. And in in and in uh, New Orleans, um, the presiding the military, some of the military was still down in the South. And Sheridan, who was no angel himself, when he came back to New Orleans and saw what happened there, you know, he said it's nothing. It, it, it's nothing short of a massacre. It was a real slaughter. Johnson presumably said he didn't really know about it, and you know, but he had been told by the mayor, who had been a Confederate, who right. was recently, you know, pardoned by Johnson, um, that something might be happening, but. It was made to seem as if— It was isolated, right? Yeah, and it was made to seem as if, you know, the the white 
police force and firefighters were innocent in that they were just making sure a riot didn't happen rather than causing the riot. And they were actually the ones that caused caused the massacre in that sense. So, Brenda, before we go on to the impeachment, share with us what each the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment, Mm -hmm. which were all passed around this period of time, what were the contents right. of those amendments? Right. Well, the 13th, we know, is um, the 13th was to codify or enshrine emancipation. Mm-hmm. The, you know, Congress and Lincoln realized legislation isn't enough, you know, just a bill, you know, a law. We have to put this in, in the Constitution, right. the slavery, the outlawing any kind of slavery of this this sort. It was ratified shortly, you know, um, in 1865, December 1865. So that was done. And as I said, you know, a condition for getting back into uh, the Union, according to Johnson, was just to say, you have to abide abide by it. Yeah. Okay. So that's that. Then when Johnson starts vetoing legislation like civil rights, Congress begins to realize that we need a 14th Amendment to make sure that everyone gets due process citizenship. And so that the 14th— Which is different than the vote. Yes. There's no vote. There's no voting yet. I just want to clarify yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, the citizenship. It's 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 pretty when you think about it, it it's pretty mild manner mm. because it's not it's not getting into the question of who should vote, should women vote, why should women vote and not vote, you know, why should black men vote and not women. So the 14th amendment is is due process. It grants citizenship and equality under the law that everyone would have. Johnson shockingly and amazingly if you think about it, actually campaigned against Against. ratification of the 14th Amendment. He went on a speaking tour because in his own time, he was considered a demagogue. And he loved to take his his feelings and his point of view on the road. And he was kind of a dandy dresser, wasn't he? Well, he was a tailor. Yeah, he, yeah. You know, so, and so clothes were important to him. But, you know, he wanted to look good on the stump, looking good, but what he happened to say. And, and he was known as this kind of politician, even when he was coming up in the ranks in Tennessee. He was a real kind of barn-burning politician. He would scream out things. He would foment the crowd. He would, you know, these were real sort of old-fashioned, almost um, almost like religious revivals yeah. in a certain sense. And he went on this tour in this, you know, summer um, of 66. This was just after the New Orleans riots, in a sense. And he was campaigning virtually against the 14th Amendment, and he was blaming the riots. He said, well, don't blame me for what happened in New Orleans. Blame Congress. And in fact, you know, you should hang these people. I mean, it was just outrageous what he was doing. And that was the 14th Amendment. Yeah. And he didn't want that passed either. The 15th Amendment comes later. It's after, it's really fully, After Johnson, It's right? after Johnson. But what Congress does before the 15th Amendment is pass Reconstruction laws. And these Reconstruction laws um, enfranchise black men in the South. Mm. And in that sense, it also divided the South into military districts um, that were overseen by several generals 
And these generals, these military men, were to protect people at the polls um, going to vote, whether they were white or black in this sense, in this particular sense. And voting, new state legislature, ratifying the 14th Amendment, that would get these states back into Congress at that particular time. Johnson was, of course, dead set against this. So those, I think, explain the amendments. Perfect. Okay. And that's also going to lead into the role of the Secretary of War, Edward yes. Stanton, because mm-hmm. it was his military exactly. that were protecting the rights of blacks under the Reconstruction laws, laws that had been passed. Right. So now let's move over to the impeachment. Okay. Um, let me read this. Sure. I'm reading uh, from Brenda Wineapple's book, The Impeachers. Uh, so here we have uh, James Mitchell Ashley ri- rises from his seat in the House of Representatives and says, I charge him with usurpation of power and violation of law in that he has corruptly used the appointing power, in that he has corruptly used the pardoning power, in that he has corruptly used the veto power, in that he has corruptly disposed of public lands of the United States, in that he has corruptly interfered in elections and committed acts that, in contemplation of the Constitution, are high crimes and misdemeanors. Therefore, be it resolved that the Committee on the Judiciary be, and they are hereby authorized to inquire into the official conduct of Andrew Johnson. So begins the impeachment. (laughs) So it does. So it does. And there were numbers of people, quite a number of people, who wanted Johnson out of office, but they thought that Ashley, um, who is a very what we would call today progressive. He was one of the most radical of the progressives in a sense that he pulled the trigger too fast. In other words, this was January of 1867. Uh, Congress, you know, was filled with Republicans, which were against uh, And there was a Johnson. distinction between Republicans and radical Republicans. Yeah. Republicans were themselves divided, like today, yeah. really, in a certain sense. And there was a group of people who were long blamed for the impeachment and said to be maniacs. I think they're actually visionary, the radical Republicans, and then there were moderate and conservative Republicans. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Ashley was at one extreme in a certain sense because he definitely wanted Johnson out of office. He thought his racial policies, his bigotry, his harangues, everything about him, his veto, as you just read, his, his misuse and abuse of power was completely offensive. Um, but it seemed premature to even some of the radicals to go that far that fast. So what they decided to do, and this is in January 1867, is open up an investigation in the Judiciary Committee. I think we all these days, today, in 2019, are more familiar with with the that process, notion. with that process, yes. And you can see it as opening the investigation. Of course, there was no TV, so nobody's going to testify on television. Excuse me, I have a question yeah, about that. sure. How were people getting their news then? Oh, there were huge numbers of newspapers. They were all very partisan, kind of like today. You know, and there, it's hard for us to remember or to know or to imagine what it was like to have several editions, a morning edition, an afternoon edition, Well, when I grew up, edition. we got a morning paper there and an you, afternoon well, paper. Well, there you go. So and I'm not 100. More. I'm old. But <laughs> no, but there you go, right? And so that there and there were— there But how did they get the news locally? In other words, this is going on in Washington. I'm in Boston. Right. 
How there did were they telegraphs. Get the telegraphs. The telegraphs. And there was a place in Washington called Newspaper Row, and there were people that would sit in Congress or listen to the various— and tap yeah, it out. And, well, they yeah, and they would run over, and they would send their dispatches, or they'd have runners. So there was wow. constant excitement. And then, you know, you may have seen—I've seen old movies where they say, extra, extra. Well, there was—actually, yeah. that happened. News, yeah. Newsboys on the street street with extra editions. People got a lot of news much more quickly than we would even think and imagine because we're so used to internet technology and things like that. But it was available. Yeah. You know, and it was going pretty fast. I mean, in that sense. And people were reading a lot and a lot of it. And it was, of course, make no mistake, the press was partisan. You know, in doing yeah. my That's work. That's not a new thing. No, <laughs> hardly. You know, sometimes I would be kind of shocked what, you know, when I would be reading a lot of these newspapers to write this book and think, my God, they can say that or or that's their point of view. And it was really very interesting because it was a wide span of points of view and you would get very different ones from very different papers. So and let's was, go back to the, so we have, so we have it goes to the judiciary. And it goes right into the d- judiciary. And I think some conservative moderates were hoping it would die in the judiciary. Mm, or hoping it would. Yeah. And so the investigations start and they go on and they go on, you know, looking for, now this gets it's interesting, it seems to me, sort of conceptually. They're looking for what we would call a kind of smoking gun. Right. In other words, if we can get Johnson on this, you know, if he did something that we can actually say is a crime that we can all hold on to, then like we good can go black forward. and white. Good yeah. black and white. So from my point of view, and I think that's it is a point of view, and it's again relevant today. They were looking for basically a narrow view of impeachment in mm. the sense of we've got to find something because if you find something concrete, if you find that smoking gun, then you can get the people who are reluctant on your side because mm-hmm. you can point to it. You've got something, to and they hold can on defend to. their action exactly because of that. Exactly. So they're really looking, and and they're you know some people alleging that Johnson was part of the, you know, the conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln. I mean, some of this was really far-fetched and didn't do anybody any good and certainly, you know, um, wasn't going to—and they didn't turn up very much, you Mm. know, in that sense. Um, So So then they pass. So then—so this is going on at one—I guess in one one part of Congress, you know, in one room. And at the same time, what Congress is also doing is passing—we mentioned these reconstruction laws. And one of these laws is something special called the Tenure of Office Act. And it was passed in order to protect Edwin Stanton, whom we just mentioned was the Secretary of War protecting the military. They knew, Congress knew that Johnson would want to get rid of Stanton and that Stanton had become by this time a radical and couldn't stand Johnson this time. They were really... And, and the, the amazing thing and, and the weird thing is that Johnson had kept Stanton in the cabinet all this in time. In the first place. In the first place, since Stanton had been a thorn in his side. But Congress knew that, that they wanted to keep Stanton. And so they passed this thing called this Tenure of Office Act, which basically said that a civil officer who who is appointed, say, for, by the president and needs confirmation in the Senate can't be fired without the similar confirmation or deconfirmation. Right. So that the Senate, in that sense, Congress has control 
over who the president is firing, because he's firing a lot of people by this time. And then Johnson. Well, what's interesting, one thing about the tenure of office, because people kind of get tripped up on this, and that is it's a shaky law. Mm. It was even Stanton thought its constitutionality was dubious. In many years, in some years and later, ultimately, it was repealed. Yeah. But it was passed for a reason. It wasn't passed to ensnare Johnson. It was passed to protect Stanton, Stanton and to make sure that people got to the polls, basically. So, Brenda, um, let me ask you a question yeah. in here, because sure. a, a question that is logical is how much of the origin of this impeachment process mm. was considered the trial of a judicial nature mm-hmm. and how much of it was considered motivated by the political. Hard to separate, mm. Roxanne, really hard to separate. I mean, we tend to separate in a sense, but it wasn't, you know, impeachment in the Constitution, as you mentioned before, you know, uh, um, a civil office, let's say a president, can be impeached for treason, which is spelled out, bribery, or something called high crimes and misdemeanors, all right? If the House passes by a majority, you know, the impeachment article, you know, impeaching the president, then the president is impeached. At that point, there's a trial in the Senate. So it's kind of a two-part process. And the Senate, you need two-thirds of the Senate to remove that officer, that president. An appropriately high bar. Yeah, it's a very high bar. And this goes now to your question. At at that trial, which is conducted in the Senate, the chief justice— Who is Salmon Chase still? Yeah, it's Salmon Chase. He he presides over it. And then the question is, and that's your question, how is the trial conducted? Is a trial conducted like a court of law? Right. Like you might see on Law and Order? Or is it conducted, you know— in terms of Senate rules, that these senators are not really lawyers necessarily, but they're they're still sitting as senators, and all that has to be decided because the 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 Constitution doesn't spell it out. So there are a lot of procedural matters right. once that happens. But at this point, Johnson is still in office. He's still obstructionist. He's still opposing the Republicans and the Reconstruction as it's conceived, you know, and. Congress is still passing legislation. The Judiciary Committee votes not to impeach. Then it changes its mind and it votes to impeach. But then the House doesn't vote. So this is going on and on. It's a long time. It's a very long time, you know, in this particular period because, again, it's one, not easy. And two, nobody really wants to. It's it's a big step. And they understand that. Of course they do. I mean— but ultimately, there are 54 senators in the House at that time, mm-hmm. and the vote is— The vote, no, the vote when he—well, what, what Johnson does is he fires Stanton. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, we left that out. <laughs> it's a little thing because nothing has been happening. But, but Johnson is getting more and more almost vehement in his opposition to Congress, and he's feeling more and more put upon. He fires Stanton, and then the lid blows off, you know, and then the vote is now they've overwhelming. Got something. Now they've got yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. And that's really the pretext because they wanted to have this for a long time. So at that point, this is February now, 1860. 
eight, you know, the the House of Representatives votes, you know, and then and then Thaddeus Stevens and some of the other Republicans, moderate as well as progressive, go into the Senate and they're saying, We passed impeachment resolutions, we're working on the articles, we're gonna we get eleven articles. Now you do your job, and it went to the Senate. And by then, we're in March 1868. We're very close to an, an election. Another by the election, way. and that's what happened at that particular point. And so, it, it was. You know, I like to think it has a kind of slow boil. I mean, the, it. You know, the whole thing didn't come to a real. And then it had boil. a tipping point. And then it had a tipping point. And Johnson created the tipping point. So, so Brenda, we're not going to cover the trial okay. because I want to pull back and sure. have a little bit of a longer view. Sure. And people need to read the. I mean, it's 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 theater. Oh, it's, it's theater. Great theater. So we'll just leave. We'll leave <laughs> all our listeners theater. in suspense. <laughs> right. Exactly. Here, here's what I'd like us to take the last few minutes sure. uh, to talk about. One of the things that was fascinating, one of the many things that was fascinating to me in reading the book is how history in the short term, medium term, and long term mm-hmm. viewed this impeachment. Yeah. Even share with us the example of. John F. Kennedy, <laughs> yeah. who he puts into the profiles of courage. Yeah. You know, that's where we started, Roxanne. So great that you brought it back and around to that issue because, as I said, I wanted to know what happened. But I also want to know, why didn't I know? You yeah. Know? And was I, I didn't think I was that unique. And I talked to people, nobody's, I mean, of I don't course, even some think it was in knew. our books or maybe it was a sentence. Well, you know, and, and it, or it was dismissed. It was a mistake. Yeah. I saw a front page um, review of a book last year where the reviewer calls the Johnson impeachment as a mistake. And it's interesting because in Profiles and Courage, which came out in 1957, and it was very well read, you know, and it was award winning and it was JFK after all. It was really Ted Sorensen, but it didn't yeah. matter. It was, you know. Yeah, the, it was his name yeah, on the book. Yeah, it was his name on the book and he's associated with it. It's that phrase. In that, there's a chapter, and the chapter is on a man named Edmund Ross, who was this junior senator for Kansas, and who basically cast the tipping vote, the one vote that turned the tide against Johnson and acquitted Johnson. And so Kennedy says that this guy is a hero. He's Stopped a profile in courage. Yeah, that he stood up against his party. This whole thing was mistaken. It was crazy. These radical maniacs like Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, whoever they happened to be, you know, they they were kind of steamrolling Johnson and Ross stood up. Well, it's a, it's a little more complicated than that. First of all, the other thing that Kennedy says in that book that's just amazing to me, he said that there wasn't really an issue fundamental to the country. Now, you might say that was true of the Clinton impeachment, but Andrew Johnson's impeachment, when you're talking about, you know, a country that's broken in half and putting it together in the terms which, you know, with which you do that, it was enormously fundamental to the nation. So that's, so that goes back to your question. Why was it kind of pushed under the rug? I didn't know the answer. And that's what was interesting. I really wanted to find out the I had no idea. And the more I read and the more I read the trial transcripts, I thought, oh, it's so clear now. The issue was slavery still. Yeah. The issue was the eradication of slavery. The issue was the country was at a crossroads. Which way are we going to go? Are we going to go to a more equal, free, just country? 
Or are we going to allow the same kind of um, point of view, the same prejudices to determine the rest of the, you know, history or, or our nation that allowed slavery to continue as long as it did? People like Charles Sumner, who I've just mentioned, stood up and basically said this this impeachment is one of the last battles with slavery. So mm. it seemed to me one of the reasons we didn't know about it was because we weren't, and you know, for many, many years, maybe until the 50s and 60s, the civil rights movement, we didn't understand the way in which race really played such a central role, mm. not just in the Civil War, but in the period after that war, and that that was really the issue that caused uh, Johnson to be impeached to me is astonishing. And Brenda, what it what it you know what it uh, makes me think about. I ju- I yeah. recently um, or last year interviewed Ron Chernow for yeah. his Grant biography. So, right. do you think the process of impeaching Andrew Johnson paved the way for Grant to take on Reconstruction with the enthusiasm? Definitely, that he did definitely. Grant loathed Johnson. You know, at first he he cut him slack and didn't gave him Johnson the benefit. not even attend Grant's inauguration. inauguration at the, by the time Grant won the presidency, and by the way, Johnson was not nominated by either party. Nobody wanted to touch him. He was yeah. toxic. Uh, Grant wanted nothing to do with him, and Johnson didn't go to the inauguration. And, and initially, he was at the White House signing bills, yeah, wasn't he? <laughs> and initially, Grant didn't even invite him in his carriage and changed his mind at the last minute. So there was no no love lost between these guys. And one of the things. You know, Grant is it, one of the things Grant did best was destroy or, or you know, sort of eradicate the Ku Klux Klan, which, in fact, Johnson and his administration had helped to foster. Mm. Johnson basically said, oh, there's no such thing as the Klan. It's just propaganda. Or they were just lying in wait, though, unfortunately. Well, they were already acting out, you know, sort of state militias, as I mentioned before, had been forming. But there's also a school of thought, you know, and and there were many sort of reluctant impeachers because they were afraid that impeaching Johnson may hurt Jan- Grant's chances getting in mm. the White House. So there were a lot of factors that were involved in the acquittal of Johnson. But to go to your question, yes, I think absolutely. What happened with Johnson and Johnson's terrible, I think, point of view in racial politics not only informed but shaped and and perhaps even radicalized Grant so that he would Mm -hmm. be able to take on that mantle for a while. Yeah. Although, you know, the seeds of what happened under Johnson, as we know, resurrected themselves um, at the end of Grant's administration and after that. So I'm a little frustrated that we don't have like another hour, but (laughs) let me— well, we'll Ask, leave your listeners with something. Yeah, well, they got to read the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, speak for a minute to how does this process that happened in the 1860s inform our current political environment? I, th- I think enormously. And first of all, it's educational. Yeah. You know, and, and we Planting need to the know. cut flowers. Yes. <laughs> right, right, avoiding exactly. that. Exactly. That's a wonderful quote. We need to know more about the process. I mean, we hear a lot about let's impeach, let's impeach, let's impeach. We need to know and figure out, are we going to do it on narrow grounds? You know, just that smoking a gun. A law that broke. Right. Or larger abusive power, unfit for office, corrupt use of pardoning power. A very difficult yeah. path. 
Yeah. And I think that's implicit in what's being debated now. Moreover, we hear a lot about the Judiciary Committee. What is their role in investigation and and bringing forward certain indiscretions, let's mm-hmm. say. And, and we're not talking sexual. We're talking, you know, um, political and abusive kinds of things. So I think all of that is really very, very important. And it's important to see that impeachment is a serious process, but there's a real procedure that's in place, that the Constitution has allowed for it to happen, it can happen, and that while it it's, you know, potential, there are negative potentials that are associated with it, it also implies a way to rectify something, mm-hmm. a way to get something right it and worked. make things better. And it did. The process held. The, the process held. The process held. And there were people of good intentions on both sides, but really uh, the ones who wanted to remove Johnson weren't successful in that, but they certainly defanged him. And they certainly, for a while, tried to turn the country in a direction and the direction for which they felt the war had been fought in the first place. Yeah. So. And although they didn't enhance the understanding of what the founders intended, they struggled with it themselves. M- much the way it struggled. They're people talking struggle to today. us today. They're yeah. talking to yeah. us today. And I think we could listen to them, basically, and we would learn a lot. And yeah. we would learn a lot about, about, as I said, ideals, you know, about making things really work better uh, than they have been. So. Yeah. So before uh, we close, because we could go on learning more, <laughs> talking about Johnson coming back to the Senate. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> Uh, we could talk about what Alexander Hamilton wrote in Federalist Papers That's about right. um, impeachment. That's we could debate right. the issues. We could talk about the current political environment. Right. But poor us, we've run out of time. <laughs> um, so I'd like to close by thanking you for joining us. Thank you. And writing what Ron Chair now has described as a superbly lyrical work plugging a glaring hole in our historical memory. So Brenda Wineapple, the author of The Impeachers, thank you so much for joining Just the Right Book. Thank you. It's a real pleasure talking with you today. Wonderful. We've been talking with Brenda Wineapple, the author of The Impeachers. Each week, Just the Right Book brings you the stories behind the ideas as I talk news, politics, business, history, tech, and more with the very best contemporary nonfiction authors. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Just the Right Book or Lit Hub Radio.